This is WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now, your host, Scott Walker. Right now that time, 8.20, and this morning we have from MTSU, Dr. Kelly Kohler on the air with us, Associate Professor in the MTSU Department of History. How are you this morning? Good. Thank you for having me. You have a uh, interesting background in studies and Russia. That that was one <laughs> of the items you, you studied. Yes. What led you to become a professor at the university? Um, well, my background actually, as you said, is pretty interesting. I have a master's in library information science, and then I also have a PhD in Soviet history. And my specialization is archives. Um, and although I study Russian history, I studied Russian and Soviet archives, but I've worked in a lot of museums and archives, and MTSU has a nationally ranked public history program, and I was hired to be the archives professor at the program, so I came here about 10 years ago. Obviously, you love history. Yes. What are some of the interesting aspects of history that you know you have worked on at MTSU with some of the students there? Well, my with the grad students, I work with them on public history and mostly a focus on like archives and collections management. So, you know, that's a combination of like looking at history itself, but also sometimes interpreting it to the public or working with the public, working with the community, thinking about how, you know, my specific interests of archives, how what we collect, how we create access to things in the archives, how that shapes how historians are tell histories and public memories. So so the students that are a part of that, where where do they dream of going after school? Well, our public history program has many different specializations. So I'm the archives professor. We have museums, oral history historic preservation, even historical archaeology. The students that come in and the masters or PhD, they can go into many different fields working in museums. Mostly, you know, my students go to work in archives. We have students that work at the Tennessee State Library and archives, different county archives around here. You know, actually, one of my former PhD students is the chief historian for NASA. So oh, wow. <laughs> you can go anywhere. That's got to be an interesting job. Probably probably yeah. fun, too. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, there are just massive museums all over the country. Washington, D.C. has some, some great museums. You have Chicago and there's quite a few other places, too. And of course, Chicago, I guess, is one of the closer ones to us, maybe six hours away or so. Mm-hmm. But are, are there certain I guess, aspects of history that students that you've worked with over the years that they tend to enjoy more so than other aspects? I don't know that there's one specific thing because we have students that come from all backgrounds and all types of interests. You know, I would like them all to be interested in Russian history, of course. No, not really, because we need people to be able to work in all the types of museums. There are great museums in Washington. There's great museums in Chicago, but there are great museums here in Tennessee as well. You know, we have Tennessee State Museum that was just recently redone and rebuilt a few years ago. Which is a lot bigger now. Yeah, and there are a lot of our former students work there. You know, places that you don't expect to have great museums also have great museums, like, like Mexico City, for example. Yeah. They've got, I think I read more museums there than, for example, New York. I, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's wild when you travel to go to some of these museums. And I don't know that enough people do that when they travel. They, uh-huh. they don't go to these huge museums to get a better understanding of history, both locally where they are and, and around the world. Well, not everybody wants to study not more history <laughs> when they're on vacation. I certainly do, but I, I know that's not everybody's choice. But I'm sure my students would. That's why they're pursuing graduate degrees in more history. Some of the students are able to obtain scholarships as well. 
Is that a significant part of the Department of History? Mm -hmm. The History Department, we have a master's in traditional history, a master's in public history, and a PhD in public history. And at each of those levels, you're able to get um, funding where your school is paid for, and you have a graduate assistantship where you might work as a research assistant or a teaching assistant or with one of our partners, like working at the um, Albert Gore Research Center, which is the archive on campus, or the Rutherford County Archives, or the Center for Popular Music, uh, or the Center for Historic Preservation. Uh, so we do have a lot of these kind of competitive funding opportunities, and many of our students it, are able to get through school that way. When you go to different departments on the campus, mm -hmm. you, you often see a, a huge variety of ages that are studying this or that or, or history. Is there an age that you are seeing in your department that is 30 plus, 25 years old plus? I, I mean, what do you see there? Well, it's a, it varies because there are a lot of students that come you know, maybe straight out from undergraduate to get their master's degree. So we have younger students. We have students that have worked for a while in a field and want to further their training. So they return to school for that or they want to change careers. Uh, our Ph.D. program, you know, a lot of times we have students that have been working in public history fields and museums or historic preservation or archives for years. But they want to be able to move further in the career, so they come back and do a Ph.D. with us. One of the recent success stories is that of Michael McCormick, and he's a candidate at MTSU in the public history Ph.D. program. Tell us more about his passion and, and what drove him. Mm -hmm. So Michael is my student specializing in archives. He came into the program. He had a background in genealogy and academic training and that, and I was really excited for him to join the program because genealogists are some of the biggest users of archives. So his interest in research, learning more about archives and bringing his genealogy ex expertise to it, you know, he'll have great publications that will help the field understand genealogy better. Uh, and as part of our PhD program, our students all do a residency. It's an opportunity for them to do a big um, public history project where they apply their academic training and the theoretical theoretical expertise they've gotten to like a practical real world project and in his case he worked with reclaim the records which is a nonprofit organization that works on um, using like freedom of information requests to states and um, to gain access to records so he worked on that for his residency and it was highlighted uh, in the Washington Post the the success they had in getting a lot of records released from the state of Maryland and made available online for everyone to access. That's pretty neat. I, I mean, whenever you have a release of documents of some sort and you're able to go back and, and read them and better understand a city, a state, whatever it may be, I, I think it helps a lot of people out. Mm -hmm. Or your own family's history. I don't know if you ever like checked out Ancestry.com or whatever, how much stuff is available and you can just put your name in and start finding things out about yourself. Actually, I recently found out that my mother's side, like I had a great grandparent that was from Tennessee and I had no idea. I had grown up in California and that side of the family I just didn't know much about. So it turns out I have Tennessee roots. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And it's wild because people also share pictures on Ancestry.com. So you're able sometimes to see pictures of family members you've never met. Yeah. <laughs> I've often heard professors say that being a professor, you have ongoing learning experiences. I mean, you're literally reading new things every day, but you're also learning from students. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what is that like? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, especially at the PhD level, because these are students who have already, you know, been through undergraduate, have a master's 
degree and some of them a lot of work experience. So they bring all their different backgrounds to the program. Like Michael, for example, knows way more about genealogy and genealogical research than I do, even though I cover some of it in my archives classes because this is a big user of archives. My student, Laura Headley, who is working on her residency right now, she's working at the Clark Memorial United Methodist Church in Nashville, um, helping to process their archival collection because they have they were very important in a lot of the civil rights movement in Nashville. But she actually has a background in broadcast journalism uh, and so she has a lot of like in her work she thinks a lot about like kind of theory that comes from communications and totally outside of my field so i learned from her as well it's fascinating how one student's project is is total total opposite of another student and you have a variety of students who are working on just a, a huge number of different projects it sounds like well it seems total opposite to you but they all the focus for my students is on archives you know, so michael worked with archives getting access to records laura's working on helping organize and create access to records and then she's going to create an exhibit as well another student i have right now that's working actually is doing his residency in croatia and uh, organization called documenta which is a human rights archives organization um and he's working on processing a collection there as well so even though his topic has to do with wars in like former yugoslavia during world war ii in the 1990s and laura's is civil rights in nashville and and michael's was access to records in maryland the core central thing is that they all have to do with archives you have all these students with different topics they're actually researching and getting information on but yet the fundamental aspect of each project is pretty much the same or quite similar. Well, it has a basis in a similar thing of an archives foundation. Is it tough for students to gather information, gather documents in other countries, or is it similar to here in the U.S. where you submit a request and there's an open records law, you get it, but mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the same in other countries. Well, and that, yeah, that depends state to state. And my students, like like Stasha, who's working in Croatia, is working in an organization that's already established. And so, you know, they already have ways of gathering documents and he's working, processing and creating access access to them, doing outreach efforts, teaching, using archives to kind of teach sometimes like high school students about conflict and conflict resolution. Um, But yeah, in terms of access, the United States has fairly good FOIA and open records laws compared to a lot of places, although I'm sure a lot of researchers would uh, complain about (laughs) the lack of access sometimes. Again with us this morning, Dr. Kelly Kohler, Associate Professor in the MTSU Department of History. Are there some countries that do allow easier access to documents and historic pieces that maybe have not yet been released? That's a good question that I don't know that I have the answer to. My Since my expertise is in like Russia, the former Soviet Union. I bet that Union. was tough to get information there. Well, I mean, it's definitely inaccessible <laughs> now, but actually, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a lot of access to records, um, but, you know, certain types of records, like secret police files, that kind of stuff is always more difficult to get access to. When looking at the Soviet Union and, and trying to uncover different facts and, you know, stories, what stood out the most? What piece of information that was historic stood out the most to you? Oh my goodness, that's, that's the biggest question possible. Um, well, for my own research, I think my particular interest is in the early Soviet period and how Bolsheviks used 
records to try and legitimize their state and try to shape the way people under understood the new Soviet regime. I think one of the things that stood out to me is like how genuinely idealistic they were in the beginning, how much access they did create to records because they really thought if people could see, you know, how bad the czarist government would be, they would all be on board with them. So I think that was surprising to me, you know, and then it was when things, when people didn't interpret the documents the same way that the Bolsheviks did, that's when you started to see kind of them slowly reduce access until, you know, we get the kind of Stalin era Soviet Union that we understand where you had no access to information. When you look at different countries around the world, Cuba, for example, has a space museum that basically tells their residents, hey, we we were the first in space. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that's not the case. But when you have countries like that, that literally write their own history in some ways, or they don't allow residents to, to view history or to even get on Google to search different things that may be historic to them, how do you go about uncovering what's true and what's false? Well, with my own experience with using the Soviet archives, I mean, a lot of the records, I use the records the government used in, to be able to make the government function. So the problem wasn't so much that they were creating fake documents as much as they were just denying people access to it. So maybe in the museum, they're telling a certain story, but once they open the records, you know, they can't lie to each other in all the documents or, or it wouldn't, the government wouldn't have functioned. So actually, a lot of times the documents have a lot of just like the honest truth as they saw it that they wrote down. You know, there's a lot more that's there, it, it, just like you read anything. If you use a document from the American government, you have to think about it's coming from the perspective of the people in power and you're going to have one perspective versus somebody that on the other side of it, the citizens that... <laughs> that um, interacted with the government would probably have a different story to tell us. You always have to look at multiple sources. These are all things I think that make history very fascinating because you're able to to go back in time almost and and read and understand what people were thinking, you know, let's say in the 1900s, the way they thought. You're able to get a better understanding, better grip on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's I mean, that's what I find fascinating, too. And I've worked as a historian. I also worked as an archivist myself. Uh, and I used to love processing collections. I felt like I got to know the people as I worked through a collection around a person. Are you ever surprised at maybe the way somebody interpreted something, you know, 100, even 200 years ago? Oh, all the time. I mean, this is what we study in history, historiography, the way people talk about history and how it's changed. And honestly, like the way we interpret history has everything to do with our own contemporary ideas. Um, so you can see that change over time as well. But, you know, it's also changes as we get access to information that we didn't have before. And that was certainly a big shift with the Soviet Union, with the 1991 sudden access to records that Westerners didn't ever had access to before. When you write something in a publication to tell others, you know, this is what we researched and and this is what we found. How do you go about making sure that you're not implementing some type of propaganda that their (laughs) government first put out and then tell the true story? Well, I mean, as a historian, you're not taking one source and just reproducing it. You look at multiple sources um, and compare it to, like, compare all of those sources together, learn about, like, what were the practices of, of keeping records and why might someone have wanted to write something in a specific way in order to please their superior, that kind of thing. You have to have... You know, this is partly what we train students in is how do you read a record and and understanding that, of course, this is the record in front of you is a type of evidence, but it doesn't mean it is the capital T truth that's telling you everything you need to know. This is one of the things that public history 
you know, tries to address as well because we have a great oral history program in our department. Dr. Martha Norkunis runs that. And that's one of the ways that you can actually talk to people later and hear their side of the story. So as you were talking about, like in Cuba, what do people say about what they actually experience versus what you know government records or government publications might say? So there's an aspect of gathering historic facts and figures of actually going to surviving family members and, and hearing their story. And, and then you put that story into words and then match it up, I guess, with all the facts and figures you uncover. Yeah. I mean, I don't do oral history. That's not my area of expertise, but that, that would be, you know, one way of getting other information or reading people's memoirs. You know, you usually have to use a bunch of different sources to actually like analyze what happened. So as we close this morning, how can folks learn more information uh, about the Department of History? You can go to our website on the MTSU page. Um, Google it. Yeah, Google it. um, Because we have great programs and masters in public history and PhD in public history. You can find me on there too. I'm happy if you want to email me directly to give you more information. Sounds good. Again, Dr. Kelly Kohler with us this morning, Associate Professor in the MTSU Department of History. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. This is Amanda at Animal City, inviting your family to come shop with my family here at 919 Northwest Broad Street in Murfreesboro. We have a variety of toys to offer the necessary enrichment for almost any type of pet. Whether you're looking for a climbing tower for your ornamental shrimp, something to keep your hedgehog happy, or a kitty condo, you can find it here at Animal City. We carry products to make your life with pets easier. Come check them out at Animal City. Animal City, 919 Northwest Broad Street in Murfreesboro. We have something in the library that I've been working with, and that's a shelf of Adams Place authors. Quite a few books that have been written by people who lived here. That's a highlight in the library that I'm proud of. Margaret Ordobodian. And we didn't consider any other place. (laughs) This was it. (laughs) I'm Terry Deal. Call me from about Adams Place. Phone 615-904-9111. Memorial Boulevard, across from Walmart. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Right now, the second half of the program, we have Dr. Megan Withley, Director of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students. How are you doing this morning? Great. How about yourself? I'm good. So talk a little bit about what is going to be coming to MTSU very soon? Yeah, so Women's History Month is in March. We're really excited. We have a ton of different things coming. We have, um, first of all, our, our theme is about belonging and engagement. So we want MTSU students, faculty, and staff to all feel a part of our campus, a part of our community. And so we have a ton of different things across a very large spectrum of areas. So we have panels for our fashion industry program. We have um, panels for our communication studies. We have uh, women's idea sharing. Our keynote speaker, which is our largest event of the month, is a disability advocate. And she 
has a very uh, large following of people on Instagram about being a disabled woman in this field of trying to get people engaged in her community. When this program is put together every year, uh, focusing on different women in mm-hmm. history, you take a look at not only those who have been at MTSU or mm-hmm. are part of MTSU, you literally look around the country. We do, we do. So every year we have a different button. This year our commemorative button is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, obviously somebody who is very prominent in Uh, the women's history community of uh, somebody who really spoke to getting women engaged in civic duty. And so we have that. Um, We have a a plethora of different people from over the years. And then we also celebrate our MTSU community. So we have four MTSU faculty and staff and one student who will be our trailblazers this year. And so we will celebrate them in conjunction with the Women of True Grit program that College of Media Entertainment is putting on. At 2 p.m., our opening ceremony will be right in the middle of that event, and we'll be able to award those four people a Trailblazer Award for the things that they're doing in MTSU and around uh, Murfreesboro and Nashville. Again with us this morning, Dr. Megan Whiffley, Director of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students. Now, I notice you said one of those who you will be highlighting is also disabled, and I don't recall in the past you having somebody who you know was not only a woman because it's national <laughs> women's history but also disabled so i'm sure she has a lot of fascinating stories she does we're very excited we're working with the disability and access center and, and this event is co-sponsored by the distinguished lecture fund on campus but she's going to really be talking about what it's like to be a woman to be a disability advocate to be somebody who's prominent in her community um, she's an author she's an advocate she's an educator very well known in her community and we're we're very excited um i'm i'm very i'm looking forward to to meeting her since i haven't met her yet i'll be talking on the phone with her here in the next couple weeks but meeting her hearing what she has to say and then having her share her story with our students so since we do have a very large disabled population on mtsu's campus and again we're talking about this is uh, rebecca tossig tossig Mm -hmm. okay and she is one of the keynote speakers Mm -hmm. is going to be there and she's also one of the best-selling authors of sitting pretty Mm -hmm. so that is a book she wrote yeah Uh, Is she going to have that available there? So that wasn't something that they asked us to do, but I can certainly um, see if the bookstore would uh, keep several copies of her book on hand for anybody who's interested. But that wasn't something that was uh, asked of me, but I can certainly look into that. How do you go about picking out these different people in history? Yeah, so um, we wait until we get the, the theme and then I email the agents that I have connections with about who they have that might fit our theme. And then the Women's History Month Committee, which is a committee made up of multiple um, faculty, staff, and students around campus uh, vote, and I take their votes, and then I go ahead and try to get those those people to campus. Now, some of those who are guest speakers at times, you know, they don't have a history of, of being speakers public speakers so that's got to be another aspect of putting all this together that probably can be difficult at times right yeah so several of our panelists are are new to speaking um or they're people who are prominent in their field but the speaking aspect of it is not necessarily what they do so i know a lot of the 
um, event coordinators have really reached out among their fields in the fashion industry in women in STEM, all of that, to bring these people to campus for our students, for our faculty, for our staff to learn about all of the different topics. Uh, are some of the guests ever surprised that you've called on them? Um, I don't know that I've had any recently, but but there have been times that uh, many of our speakers have really um, loved coming to MTSU. They love um, the atmosphere at MTSU. They love um, the ability to share their story. And so they, they've really connected with our folks. Well, I mean, it, it's an honor for sure to be able to speak before a group, especially about, you know, your background and, and what made you you. Exactly. So I, I you know, I, I'm sure they're honored to do that. But I'm sure at the same time, some of these folks are pretty humble and it's it's maybe surprising to them. They are. Over the years I've had, I mean, you name it, the, the people that I've had, they are um, they'll walk through the front door. They don't expect to have security. They don't expect to have a four-course meal waiting for them when they get here. Um, they're they're just people like everybody else and, and out there telling their story. And then every once in a while, you do have guests who do require security <laughs> and you know maybe a 10-piece meal. I have, <laughs> I, mean, I, have, I have been in those events as well. That, that's got to be interesting as well. Oh, my goodness. I could talk for hours on that one. I, I mean, it's, it's fascinating the different work that is done at the local campus. And it is. I, I don't think people realize all that happens there. There are events every day all day on mtsu's campus um i have been in the women's center for in the women's and non-traditional student center for four years previously to that i worked in student activities there are things going on all day every day not only for our students but our for, for our community so obviously our keynote is open to the community people can come um, and see her it is completely free um, and and we just have such a great outreach um, not only on campus, but in our community of the things that we're doing um, educationally, socially. Um, we we love our students. We love our community. And being able to put these things on for them really show our engagement, um, like this month says, belonging and engagement, because we do want people to belong on campus. We do want them to feel a part of things. And this is one of the ways that we do it out of the classroom. Again, with us this morning, Dr. Megan Whiffley, director of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students. And to learn more about this upcoming event, where do people go online? Yeah, so you can go to mtsu.edu slash JAC. If you're on a computer on the left-hand side, you'll pop down to the Women's History Month tab. If you're on mobile, it'll be the three bars at the top, and you can pop to the Women's History Month tab. Sounds great. Well, thank you for joining us this thank morning. Thank you so much. Stay with us. We do have more guests coming your way in just a minute. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. As cold and flu season approaches, one of the best things that you can do to give somebody who is sick is a quart of Demas's chicken and rice soup. This is Peter Demas with Demas Family of Restaurants. This soup is my grandmother's recipe, and we have used this soup in order to help our family whenever we are sick. Just gives us a good comfort feeling. One of the things that you can also do is you can now ship that soup anywhere across the United States, and you can order that soup online at demasfamilykitchen.com. If you're looking for an authentic relationship with financial experts who genuinely care about your unique needs, Capstar Bank is for you. Capstar Bank is dedicated to the people of this community. Capstar Bank wants to help you reach your financial goals. Because at Capstar Bank, you matter to us. Capstar Bank, 2230 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, 
CapstarBank.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. If you're not waking up to the wake-up brew, here's what you've been missing. Disgruntled Workers' Day. (laughs) At this moment, I am a disgruntled worker. Don't miss the wake-up brew with John, Brian, and Dalton. Weekday mornings from 6 until Swap and Shop. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Now on the show with us this morning, we have Dr. Deborah Lee, NHC Chair of Excellence in Nursing and Director of the Positive Aging Consortium. Uh, Tell us more about that first. Hi, good morning. Well, our Positive Aging Consortium started in 2019 and we're focused on research, service, and education that helps support happy, healthy aging as as we get older. And we, uh, this will be our second, we've had two Positive Aging Conferences. This is gonna be our second one. So we're excited to talk with you about that a little bit today. And also with us, Kevin Furr, owner of Amada Senior Care and community member of the MTSU. Well, I just talked about it. So <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit about your background and, and what led you to be a part of this. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. Uh, so my wife and I run Amada Senior Care. It's a, it's a non-medical in-home care agency that helps seniors or adults with disabilities maintain dignity and function in their home. And I was active on the MTSU campus and I met Deborah. I'm not sure exactly how we met, but we got in contact and uh, we started talking and we had a lot of similarities. And I am on the planning group for this annual conference. And I just give kind of an industry perspective, if you will, as opposed to more of the academic. So we kind of bleed academics and uh, industry. And of course, registration is open for the second Positive Aging Conference, which is going to be in early April at MTSU. So what can folks learn at this conference? Well, we like to have a nice variety of for people. So our guest speaker, our keynote speaker is Dr. Rana Day, who is a retired sociologist from MTSU and has a long history of studying older adults. And he's going to be talking about growing older with enthusiasm, because uh, I think we don't focus enough on those p- uh, parts of aging. And we also have uh, General Huber coming from MTSU talking about sort of as he's grown older, how he's worked with the transition in his life. We also have um, Dr. Ralph Alvarado, who is the commissioner for the Tennessee Department of Health, coming and talking about age-friendly public health. And then we have afternoon breakout sessions where we have topics on nutrition. We have topics on opioid um, use in older adults. We talk about um, a whole health approach to mental health. So we're talking about mental, physical, psychological. And then in the afternoon, Kevin's going to be doing a session on uh, veterans benefits. So we do have some focus in this conference on veterans. And then we're going to be talking about using technology to help us stay connected as we get older. So those are like an overview of the topics that we're going to have this year. Now, you may have researched this as otherwise, but I, I think a lot of adults at age 50, they really start evaluating and reevaluating their life and what the future is going to look like. And then that 50th birthday is scary. But talk a little bit maybe about what folks can do to age in a positive manner and not have that, oh, I'm scared outlook. Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things people don't know, I think, well, is that the word you use, positive. So aging with a positive attitude And having exposure to older adults who are aging positively actually not only uh, enhances our own experience, but actually has shown that 
it relates to our longevity. So people who have more positive attitudes about aging tend to live happier, longer lives, that's for sure. I think the other thing is just staying connected. Um, rather than, as we get older, you know, getting more and more isolated, staying connected, and continuing to have a purpose is a real big thing. And I think, you know, when we're 50, we're often still in the workforce if we're working in the workforce. And then as we age out of that, we are then transitioning into retirement. But those connections and taking on new opportunities in life that afford us that time we now have is a really important part about aging well. And of course, you know, physical activity, whatever works for you, you know, eating well. I mean, those things are super important too. But I think the connection and the purpose and the attitude have a lot to do with how we age. I think a large number of folks, they retire without ideas of what I can do next. Next, what I can do for hobbies, where I can travel to. And if you don't think about those things, you end up sad. You end up with depression. So you, you yeah. do have to keep moving. Well, Go ahead, Ken. Yeah, there are a couple of uh, – so I've been taking care of seniors for a decade now. And one of the terms I like to use and we like to use is aging gracefully, right? So we are very adept at planning, whether it comes to typically financial planning, right? Preparing for retirement. What we're lacking as as a society is planning for aging gracefully, right? Because education is key activity is key right and you don't have to run a marathon but you should just be doing physical activity and it's up to us and stuff like our positive aging consortium to get that type of information out there to help our community continue to be you know thriving and and robust today you hear so often that a grandmother a grandfather grandparents in general they're raising their grandchildren and when that comes into play with retirement that can really change the picture absolutely it it can be a challenge people didn't plan on um, right when they were thinking about their own retirement and you know many times it's a challenge financially for sure for people Um, the other thing is that oftentimes you do hear the positive side of that too yeah there's two sides of it that, that they will say having my grandchildren has kept me young because it's gotten me involved in things that maybe I didn't have time to do with my own children when I was working. So sometimes uh, I see that in my sister and how she just um, has really blossomed, I think, as a grandmother and the involvement that she has with her own grandchildren has brought so much joy to her life. Um, And she's not a primary caregiver of those children, I will say that. But I I think there is the side of that as well. But you're right. Um, You know, grandparents have a lot on their plates when they are raising young children. Yeah, I've seen both sides of that, just like what you were saying, where some take it as the negative. You know, oh, no, I'm old. I can't do this. And then you hear the positive. And Mm -hmm. it's they're they're almost, you know, brand new love stories of children and, and having the you know you're able to go back to their school all over again and have teacher conferences and and visit the classroom bring muffins whatever you do but you're able to do it all over again and sometimes that gives these parents who are you know elderly a a chance to kind of relive some of those positive moments most older adults as as grandparent age i think will tell you that being around younger people makes them feel younger it makes them feel more engaged in life. Um, so, you know, that's another thing I think as we age, are there opportunities to interact with young people? And it's also great for young people to interact with old people, uh, older adults, because then they see um, other adults uh, in their life who are thriving and growing, even though they're, they're older. So, Kevin, in your line of work, how often 
do you go and check on somebody, help somebody with whatever issue they're having and see that, you know, there is depression there. There is a problem that needs to be addressed. Yes. Great, great question. And we pay very close detail to the care continuum process. So when a client comes on service with a mod of senior care, they might have uh, problem X, right? But over time, problem X can morph into problem Y or Z. So thus, we have care coordinators who will go out and monitor that, right? We have individuals who are experts in the areas of cognitive dissonance or, or, or Alzheimer's, right? Vascular dementias. We have folks that are experts in evaluating depression and, and along those lines. But I think getting back to our April 5th conference, one of the objectives we had as a planning commission this year was to get male participants more actively involved. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be stereotypical, but more times than not, these type of educational events are the senior women who, who like to come out and that's great. But so we've dedicated some content to our veterans. We have a wonderful veteran community right here in Murfreesboro. And uh, we have some some topics that are related to wellness, both physical and mental wellness for veterans as they age, and then accessing VA benefits through the VA hospital that I'll tell you right now, a lot of veterans just don't know about. So it's our objective to get that information into their hands so they can make informed decisions. I'm curious, are there more senior women, living senior women out there than there are men, you know, senior women who are, who are widows? Absolutely. Uh, we do know that longevity uh, favors women. <laughs> and so uh, women's life expectancy is a few years older than men's in, in this country. So for sure, uh, there are more older women in our in our um, demographic. And we we do, as Kevin said, we don't want this just to be for older women. We really would love because this information is very vital to older men as well. So we're hoping that some focus on our veterans will help pull some of those gentlemen in. And to learn more about this, because we're already out of time, <laughs> folks can go to the MTSU website, mtsu.edu forward slash PAC pack, then forward slash conference and dot PHP. That's a lot to yeah. remember, but we'll, we'll post some links. But is what, what do we Google in order to find it? Yeah. Uh, you can Google um, MTSU Positive Aging Conference, and that should pull you right yep. there. But mtsu.edu forward slash PAC will get you there, too. Sounds great. Again, with us this morning, Dr. Deborah Lee, NHC Chair of Excellence in Nursing and Director of the Positive Aging Consortium, and also Kevin Furr, owner of Amada Senior Care. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Thank Appreciate you so it. much. Thank you. That time right now, 9 o'clock, local news and news from CBS. Come your way next. WGNS's Ron Jordan right now.